BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, the Roger Shaw takeover is going ahead. What will it mean for your cell phone bill? Plus, bike lanes out, patios in. We look at the follow-up from City Council's big decision. And for the top rope, producer Stephen Chang joins us live from WrestleMania. And Jennifer Aniston says a whole generation of kids find friends offensive. Our Friday rap panel weighs in on the woke. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's begin with our top story. The federal government, of course, approved a multi-billion dollar merger of telecom companies Rogers and Shaw, but with conditions that Ottawa insists will make uh, the deal good for all of you out there. Now, Francois-Philippe Champagne, uh, the Minister of Innovation Industry, made the announcement this morning. He called the merger a watershed moment uh, for the telecom sector, saying it would drive down wireless prices for all Canadians. Part of the deal uh, includes the vast majority of wireless business, Freedom Mobile, being sold to Quebec-based Videotron. That will mean Freedom Mobile's 2 million customers will move over to Videotron. Now, Rogers and Videotron have signed written undertakings agreeing to 21 different conditions. Uh, Mr. Champagne said he will be uh, act like a hawk to ensure that the companies uphold their commitments. Should either party breach any of these commitments, they will be required to pay significant financial damages up to 200 million in the case of Videotron, and up to $1 billion in the case of Rogers. Now, in the case of Videotron, what they have signed on to is that they have to offer plans that are comparable comparable to those currently available in Quebec. In Quebec, uh, in residents there, or at least have the opportunity for slightly lower prices than here in British Columbia. They also have to offer uh, their plan options uh, have to be at least 20% cheaper than those offered by other major players. Uh, Videotron also cannot transfer the free to mobile license for 10 years, and they have to expand its 5G network. Uh, in Freedom Mobile's existing territory within two years. They also have to increase data allotments for Freedom Mobile customers by 10% as they bring down prices. And as the minister said, the company faces a maximum fine of $200 million if it violates any of these conditions. Uh, The minister was asked uh, how uh, the agreement that uh, he has been witnessing will lead to lower prices. Take a listen. The evidence is undeniable. The way to drive down prices is through competition. Having a fourth strong national player does lead to lower prices. Now, joining me now to talk about the Rogers-Shaw deal is Michael Geist. He's a professor of law at the University of Ottawa. He's a Canada Research Chair in the Internet and e-commerce law. Professor Geist, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Do you view this as a good deal for Canadian consumers? No. Um, You know, I I don't think you end up with more competition by having less competitors. And with this deal, alongside the increasing elimination of many of the independent players that have been in in part fueled by this deal, has meant is that we have fewer and fewer competitors in the Canadian marketplace, which, you know, the minister acknowledges we've got some of the highest prices. Uh, I just am skeptical, as I think so was the Competition Bureau, so was uh, a parliamentary committee that looked at this issue that this is that this merger is going to actually result in in a good deal for consumers. In your mind, why would the government allow it allow it to go ahead based on what you've just said? Well, you know, listen, the government rarely stands in the way of of, of large mergers, and the playbook was set by way of an earlier merger with Bell and MTS in Manitoba. Mm-hmm. Rogers largely just played the same playbook. And, you know, I, I think we could ask that question now for almost two decades. Why has the government allowed Canada to become one of the most expensive markets in the world for wireless services? And it's really, in many ways, given free reign, I think, to some of these large players who um, haven't faced foreign competition uh, to any significant degree and, frankly, haven't found uh, faced the kind of regulatory pressure that we might have hoped for to bring in more competition. So this has been a success, a successive longstanding story. It's cut across governments, both conservative and liberal. 
And, you know, I think uh, the cynics with all of this would have said that this was entirely predictable, albeit pretty discouraging. Uh, so what needs to be done? You did mention, look, uh, you have to have stronger policy, stronger government. Is it is also just a case of just allowing more American companies to, to come in and buy some of these cell phone companies, at least maybe even have a majority share? Um, is that part of it as well? Well, foreign competition, I think, would have helped. You know, I think there's an open question as to, um, as to whether or not we may have just missed our moment with respect to foreign competitors. You know, there was a time when we might have opened up the market more aggressively to foreign competition. And had we brought in some of those larger players, I think we would have a bit of a different competitive dynamic. We could look at other countries, Australia, for example, that it is a pretty similar ge- geography to Canada and yet a much more competitive environment with foreign players. So part of it may be still to see if someone's willing to come in, although past past attempts at that haven't worked well. There are other possibilities. We could emphasize more what's known as MDNOs, mobile virtual network operators. That would be independent players that run on the networks of some of the established players uh, and pay wholesale rates but have the ability to bring in new kinds of competition. But what we know at a minimum mm-hmm. is that we what we've seen to date just isn't working. So is it a? And I'm trying to understand this. Like, if, if, if this would make many consumers, in fact, all consumers, happy, knowing full well they can pay twenty, thirty percent less in cell phone costs, uh, you would think there would be elected officials or elected officials who would take that opportunity and uh, because it would be incredibly popular um, it, it, what is, is it just a lack of will then I'm trying to understand this every government that comes along you're absolutely correct liberal or conservative they all talk about driving down costs they always talk about Canadians paying too much but then at the end of the day we get deals like this and somehow we're supposed to be happy yeah, no, the, you know, well, I think the government knows full well that this is not a good news story. You don't take good news stories and try to bury it on a Friday with two weeks of vacation headed, headed the way for the various MPs so they don't have to be questioned on it in the House of Commons. It's, it, I mean, it's an ongoing source of frustration that we haven't seen a government that's more aggressive on this. And in some ways, you know, it, it's substituting things that may attract attention in some headlines for actual changes on competition. You had the minister even in the in the opening talk about the contracts that they've got and these 10-year commitments. You know, first off, these companies don't think in 10-year chunks. They think in longer terms, and they're willing in many respects to pay a little bit now for a longer-term, less competitive environment down the road. And we've got a, a situation where quite literally we had one of the largest players, Rod, like Rogers, choosing who its competitor would be. I mean, they were, and they started with, well, we don't want a competitor. Then they went to a couple of proposals that just were just so ridiculous that, that nobody seemed to even take it seriously. Mm-hmm. And so their, their best case was Videotron, which offers some amount of competition, but they know it's the weakest of the choices because no one, if given the opportunity to effectively choose who their competitor is going to be, is going to make it a strong competitor. Mm-hmm. I always notice with the European, uh, the e- European nations, EU specifically, that they seem to be much more, um, much more vigilant, but also uh, have robust policy that challenges the status quo. You know, recently we heard that uh, the the roaming fees, whenever you go to the United States, the that the companies are bumping it up from fourteen dollars a day to sixteen. Each one is doing the same s- similar sort of thing here in Canada. Yet in the in in the EU, there's there's been talk about just you, you don't pay roaming charges, or it's going to be the same whatever you pay in your host country traveling through the EU. Yes, there are some advantages of being the EU, and you do that. But Europeans seem to do it a lot better in regards to pricing, in regards to uh, consumer protection than than we do here in North America, specifically Canada. I think you're absolutely right. You know, I, I think Europe has prioritized consumers and regulations to say to say, listen, this is these are our objectives, and we're going to do something about it. Whereas there's been a real reticence of, for the government to do much of anything on on some of these issues. And roaming is a perfect example. It was only a few years ago that Rogers unveiled their Rome like home, where it was five dollars. Um, and, and now, you know, you, you cited where the costs are going. That kind of price increase on a daily basis is just wildly in excess of certainly what we've seen from an inflationary perspective. But it, it suggests that it was almost a bit of a bait and switch where we bring in these customers, say that we're offering, at, for example, low roaming fees, and steadily increase them to the point where we're back to being wholly uncompetitive. And other countries have simply not been content to to sit back and say this is acceptable.
Yeah, absolutely. Professor Geis, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Ooh, we're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-patrollable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Well, separated bike lanes along a four-kilometer stretch of Broadway will not be built uh, anytime soon. Of course, that's a result of uh, the City Council vote yesterday with the ABC majority choosing to follow a a staff recommendation to wait until the Broadway subway opens in 2026 before considering bike lanes along that stretch from Maine to Arbuta Street. Now, the first option, which uh, the council adopted, was to reallocate uh, the curb lanes to allow for wider sidewalks and public spaces, so more patios uh, for seating, trees, and green infrastructure. And as uh, ABC uh, City Councillor uh, Mike Klassen said yesterday, it's just to, uh, to protect for future active transportation lanes as well. Now, there was no um, price tag put on uh, potential bike lanes and moving ahead with it uh, in the option number one. But uh, there has been speculation, options two and three, that could cost anywhere from 10 to $20 million. Now, our next guest knows a thing or two about bike lanes and city planning. Uh, Brent Totteron is a city planner. He's an urbanist at Todd Urban Works. He's a former uh, chief planner for the city of Vancouver. And now he advises cities all over the world on city planning needs. Brent, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Now, I won't have you delve into the politics and leave that to elected officials, but um, was this a lost opportunity yesterday? Well, I think that the lost opportunity has, has started before yesterday. I think when you actually step back and think about the way that Broadway as a corridor is now going to transform based on the land use decisions the council has made, how the city is going to evolve over the next 10, 20, 30 years, uh, our, our existing policy and, frankly, uh, the, the, our need to pick up speed on, on being more multimodal, to be less car dependent, more oriented around walking, biking and transit, uh, where we don't have all the time in the world and there's a real sense of urgency. It really should have been a no-brainer from the beginning that separated, protected, uh, uh, active transport lanes be part of this design. and. One of, the, one of the ways it became easier to do the wrong thing yesterday is because of how rushed it seemed, uh, a sort of a last-minute uh, conversation, when it never should have been a last-minute conversation. So I have absolutely no doubt that future generations, and even us just a few years from now, are going to be looking at this and going, what were they thinking? Why didn't they do this? It's kind of, it kind of was a no-brainer. Uh, so when, when council says, or some in council say it can be revisited, I think I would agree with that, but uh, it, it will come with cost. It just comes with more conversation and delay. And what you're saying here is it should have just been a part of the broader conversation from day one. The process well, was I'm probably gonna, flawed. Well, I'm going to force myself to be optimistic and, and take everyone at face value that, that the idea is still on the table. It's just a matter of not now. But this isn't my first rodeo. I've been, I've been city building for 31 years, including as Vancouver's chief planner. And what I've seen over and over again is that it just gets harder to tear up a road again. Uh, this was the easiest, the cheapest, 
the least impactful on retailers, the least politically contentious opportunity we will ever have to, to do uh, this, this correct thing. So from, it, that doesn't make it impossible moving forward, mm-hmm. but it makes it more expensive, more politically hard, more damaging and, and impactful to street retailers, more frustrating for the public. It just makes it a lot harder for a future, future council to do the right thing then. This was as easy as it was ever going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you use the term active uh, uh, tra- transport lane. It's not a bicycle lane anymore. I mean, I walk into the office, I park my vehicle, and I walk out on the street here in downtown Vancouver, and the amount of, uh, of um, you know, vehicles that are not bicycles uh, but still are electric-powered and moving people uh, mm-hmm. are just fascinating to watch in downtown and how, how much the population of, of those types of vehicles have picked up. Now, you consult around the world with other cities. What kind of trends are you seeing in regards to these tra- transport lines and, 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 and how they fit into, into cities? Well, the smart cities, and frankly, a lot of the cities you wouldn't expect to be smart about this, the ones that uh, you expect to be still really car-focused, have, have come around in the last five to ten years to how important it is to think multimodally and how that actually works better for everyone, including drivers that this fake narrative of bikes versus cars or bikes versus pedestrians that actually played out during the public uh, meeting yesterday, um, it's all, that's all fake news because cities that are multimodal work better for everyone, including drivers. So and absolutely, it's, it's more of an active transport lane because this is about uh, mobility assist. Uh, uh, this is about micro-mobility. It's, a, it's about a lot of ways to move that isn't just about bikes. But let's be clear. Separated, protected bike lanes, like the kind that Vancouver's been doing and we've really been a leader at, we know, and other cities know, smarter cities know, they save public money, they improve business on their streets, they reduce pollution and emissions related to climate change, they reduce accidents and collisions for all road users, not just for people riding bikes, for all road users, including pedestrians on sidewalks. They improve public health and public health care costs, which they lower, they support social equity, and they move a lot more people more efficiently using a lot less space. And as that Broadway corridor is going to densify significantly, we need to move more people with less space and less cost and less emissions. So that's why leaning in on the idea of multimobility, as opposed to this whole fake narrative about cars versus bikes, just multimobility is going to make that corridor work better. And I say that as a city planner who understands how streets work better or worse, that I understand the math, I understand the evidence. And and that's what uh, leads me to conclude that this was the right move right now. Is there a city you like uh, that you travel to or have consulted with that are really doing it well? Well, you know what? I think there's a real mistake that city planners like me and sometimes politicians make where when we talk about multimobility, we bring up Copenhagen, we bring up Amsterdam, and we even bring up Paris lately, which has really transformed itself around bikes in just the last few years. But the problem with that is it's too hard for Vancouverites to think, well, but we're not Paris, and we're not Amsterdam, and we're not Copenhagen, even though those cities used to be choking in cars too. What I like are the cities like Calgary and Edmonton, in Alberta, for gosh sakes, that Calgary held one of the best uh, anywhere um, bike network pilots for their downtown and inner city a few years back. And after proving it actually made mobility better for everyone, they made the bike lane pilot permanent. And then Edmonton, based on, you know, the Battle of Alberta, which is not just about hockey, said, well, we'll one-up them. We'll just build it without a pilot. And those two Alberta cities leaned in on micro-mobility because they knew it's good for business. And they actually learned from the success that Vancouver's had in the past. And, you know, as a great example, the fact that the business community in downtown used to be against bike lanes, but now the Downtown Business Association is probably the biggest booster of separated protected bike lanes whenever they come up in the downtown. So, you know, cities that aren't that far from us, aren't that different from us, and frankly, cities you wouldn't expect to be smart and progressive, they have become my favorite cities because... You know, I often say if Calgary gets this, if Edmonton gets this, why are we still struggling to get this? Well, uh, Brent, I always appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us today. Appreciate it. Have a good day. Have a good day. My pleasure.
former B.C. Liberal cabinet minister who has been sitting in uh, our legislature as an independent is the new leader of the uh, provincial conservatives, John Rustad, uh, who is an MLA for the Nechaco Lakes constituency, was acclaimed leader of the Conservative Party of B.C. Uh, as he was the only candidate who entered the race. Uh, you may recognize Mr. Rust- Rustad's name. Uh, he was dumped from the B.C. Liberal caucus by uh, Liberal leader Kevin Falcon last August uh, for his public statements uh, and social media posts suggesting climate change is not caused by carbon dioxide emissions. Lots going on in BC politics. Joining me now is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Keith, thanks for joining me. Happy Friday. <laughs> Happy Friday. It was supposed to be a quiet Friday over there at the legislature, but uh, clearly not. What do you make of, of what, what uh, Mr. Rust has done? Well, John Rust has the latest guy to try to breathe some life into the long, moribund uh, political party known as the BC Conservatives or the Conservative Party BC. They haven't had an elect, someone elected as a conservative uh, since 1978, when Vic Stevens won a by-election. Uh, they have ceased being a force in B.C. politics to any great degree by the time the coalition government left in the 1940s, uh, early 50s. But, and this is a big but, uh, John Rustad's going to bring some things to the table that should be a little worrisome for the B.C. Liberals. First of all, he's going he's to be in the hallway here at the legislature. He's going to be very close to TV cameras. Uh, he's a pretty quotable guy. He's going to get some publicity. So he will just inevitably increase the profile of the B.C. Conservative Party. Now, you look at the impact that party can have. It's not about necessarily electing MLAs, but they can attract enough voters in some writings to spell the difference between the NDP or the Liberals winning. And in fact, that's what we saw in 2020. The, the Conservatives only ran 19 candidates in 87 writings. But in several writings, in fact, four writings, they polled enough voters seemingly away from the B.C. Liberals to allow the NDP to win in areas they historically had never, ever won before. And I'm talking about Langley, Chilliwack, and Abbotsford. So if, if Rudstad can breathe some life into this party... He can establish, I think, a party that is going to run more candidates, have a higher profile, and strengthen the NDP's hold on those writings. They had a breakthrough win in 2020 because the Conservatives will likely run candidates there again. They got an average of about 3,000, 3,500 votes there, so it's not an insignificant number. But then there's a bunch of other writings the Liberals hold where they won by only a handful of votes, less than 500 or less than 600. And I'm talking about Fraser Nicola, uh, Kamloops North Thompson, Surrey White Rock, where the margin of victory was very small. The Conservatives did not run candidates in those writings. If they were to run candidates next time and it's another close race, again, it weakens the Liberals and strengthens the NDP's chances of winning those writings. And then you look at Nechako Lakes, which is John uh, Rustad's writing. He's won it several times. He's well-known. Mm-hmm. Very few people live there, and very few people vote. Uh, less than 7,000 people even voted in the last election. Um, so he, he's quite conceivable. John Rustad wins that as a conservative MLA. And then finally, you look at the Two-Piece River uh, writings, the most conservative area of the entire province. The Conservatives finished a strong second in both those writings to the B.C. Liberals. So the Liberals would have to be worried potentially for the Conservatives even winning there. Rustad could establish a scenario we saw similar in 1996 when the Reform Party won two seats but scored enough votes in about 10 to 12 writings to deny the Liberals a win. And the Liberals had the most votes, popular vote, but they, didn't ha- they weren't able to establish a government because the NDP was way- able to score a majority of seats with fewer votes because of that proverbial split on the centre-right. I think in 96 election night, I was up in Dawson Creek, and uh, you were in the, in the lower mainland here. I think Clem Chapel was covering uh, the NDP or the Liberals that night. But yeah, I was up there with Jack Wisegarvey, and, and, and I recall that uh, uh, that night um, uh, vividly. But it's interesting. I think for most of our listeners, like the, the BC Liberals uh, are essentially or are um, a coalition of conservatives and federal liberals. And generally when that political equation, when they're working together, you know, say two-thirds of the time in the last 60 years, they've been able to hold government. But when that coalition falls apart, uh, the NDP uh, usually get in and it can cause challenges. How does – what does Kevin Falcon do now? And what I mean by that is – He's got to make sure his right flank, which is the conservative mm-hmm. voter, comes along with him. Yet at the same time, he has to win in the lower mainland, in communities like Vancouver and Coquitlam and in Surrey, uh, in Richmond, all those places. And that generally means much more of a centrist voter, dare I say liberal voter as well. And yep. that's going to be very difficult for him. It's, 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 it's a real challenge for, for Falcon. 
and the Rebels, uh, I think they may regret booting Rustad from from the caucus. Uh, and I, also, it's interesting. I've known John Rustad for a long time. We're not talking about a complete, you know, out there type of guy. He's got a very strategic um, plan here. He's really going to be focusing on a number of issues that I think will appeal to the rural and interior and northern voter, and that is. He's going to, he doesn't like the increase in the carbon tax. He thinks some of the climate change um, initiatives to fight climate change are unrealistic. He says he's not a climate denier. He just doesn't think some of these, these prescriptions from governments aren't necessarily working and are end up hurting people in the pocketbook. So that's, a, that's going to be a big plank in his, his ongoing themes in the legislature. And I think he's going to resonate with some of those, not, uh, not in necessarily urban areas, but certainly more rural and regional areas. And then Falcon has to co- find a way to claw his way back into the seats around Metro Vancouver. And that is not, um, that is not tacking towards John Rustad's position. It's becoming, as you say, Jazz, a more middle-of-the-road voter. And so he's, he's getting outflanked on the right by Rustad in, in the areas the Liberals currently hold seats in. Mm-hmm. At least that's the potential. You know, let's not overbuild it yet. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he could, while well, his, his rear flank is being threatened by John Rustad, uh, he might have to let that go uh, because he needs to pick up the seats in Metro because there's far more many seats in Metro Vancouver than there are elsewhere in the province. Well, I had Bob Rennie. Um, I was uh, at a real estate event and, and I was moderating a conversation with the mayor and Bob Rennie. Bob Rennie said, you know, of all the immigrants that uh, come to Canada, uh, 19% end up in British Columbia. 16 of that of those 19% end up in the Lower Mainland. Mm-hmm. So the we're in an era of uh, huge growth, era of hyper-diversity as well, and and speaking of that voter, I'm almost wondering, can this coalition in a polarized environment, this conservative liberal coalition called the BC Liberals, called the Socrats prior to that, it's it's very difficult in this era to keep that type of coalition together. It is. It is. It is very, it's a very good point. I, and I think we're seeing signs of some of the slight crack, cracks in the walls of the BC Liberal Party where it is moving a little to the right um, and away from liberal positions. There's not many real true true liberals in the Liberal caucus. It is increasingly a conservative caucus and a conservative party. And now that they're dropping the word liberal from their name at some point, that will further distance itself from the centrist liberal voter for for many people. Not all of them, but for many. So it becomes the BC United Party um, and no longer associated with liberalism. It's going to be, it's a challenge for Kevin Falcon and the Liberals. It's now threatened on the right from John Rustad and the challenge to hang on to the center where most of the people live in Metro Vancouver at a time when you no longer associate yourself with the word liberal. It's a challenge. We are speaking to Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. We're just talking about uh, John Rustad, who sits as an independent but now will be sitting in the legislature as the leader of the Conservative Party of British Columbia. Keith, I wanted to chat with you about electricity as well and our future energy needs. I think Site C uh, is still a couple of years away or even three years away before it comes fully on stream. Uh, But we recently had the approval of uh, or Cedar LNG based up in Kitimat that will be moving forward, a small LNG project. Uh, Of course, uh, LNG Canada's project, the LNG Canada project is moving forward, a massive uh, LNG facility, which there's already talk of, of of uh, Shell wanting to expand that, uh, those projects will, um, you know, require some sort of electrification, or at least future LNG projects. Well, that's where the government's going. Do we have enough capacity right now to be doing any of this? Well, uh, interesting. Uh, former civil servant Rick McCandless, uh, got a, who has intervener status, by the way, at uh, the UBC Utilities Commission when it comes to things like BC Hydro rate hikes. So he's seen as to have a level of expertise. Uh, that is far more the average citizen. So he had a paper out. He publishes papers from time to time that are published, and he had a piece last week pointing out that if we were to electrify these proposed LNG plants, which is the requirement from the government because they can't uh, add more greenhouse gas emissions through burning LNG, it would just basically uh, overwhelm the system. We do not have enough electricity. Hydro's forecasting to increase. Um, uh, the gigawatt hours is by less than 4,000, and yet it, the combined uh, gigawatt hour requirement of these of these six uh, LNG projects total more than 18,000 
uh, gigawatt hours. So the math doesn't add up. I mean, not all of these are necessarily going to go through, go through, but LNG Canada has been improved. Um, and if it gets second phase one is 1400 gigawatt cedar is uh, cedar LNG is 1500 gigawatts. That's using up all of the new generation from BC Hydro quite apart from the increased electrification as part of the government's plan, as is many governments' plans, because electricity is clean, mm-hmm. uh, of so many things in society, not the least of which is the electric vehicle. So the government's policy right now is 90% of all cars sold in B.C. by the year 2030 have to be EVs, have to be battery-driven uh, motor vehicles. Um, B.C. Hydro estimates that's about 350,000 cars. Well, again, this, the, uh, as McCandless points out, the um, uh, electrical supply is one issue. There's another issue, and that is the, the supply chain for building electric vehicles. Many people have pointed out China controls the, ch- the supply chain because it's been buying up all the mines that produce the minerals that build batteries in electric vehicles. Those are cobalt, nickel, and lithium. China around the world and Asia and Africa have been buying up the mines. So they control the production line or the supply chain. And it's just unknown whether that many EV vehicles can be produced in that short a period of time to meet BC's demand, let alone the rest of North America and Europe's demand when it comes to EVs. So the, the materials are one thing, supply chain is another thing, and energy supply is another thing. So, and you add it all up, and there's got to be some skepticism. So where do we go? And if, if, I mean, everybody, I think, that uh, is probably thinking their next vehicle has at least potentially could be an EV. Um, you still have uh, industrial needs. So are we going to look at more hydroelectric dams? Is this about solar? Is this about hydrogen? Well, it's likely a combination of all of that. Uh, Christian Freeland's budget this past week is, contains a lot of money of tax credits and incentives to build green technology, $20 billion over five years. Um, that's to compete with the United States, Joe Biden administration has a similar push to green tech. But it does cost an enormous amount of money and capital to construct things like wind farms, for example. Um, and whether or not we can do that fast enough to meet those electrical uh, demands is uh, seems questionable. Site C will produce more than 5,000 gigawatt hours to to electrify 350,000 um, uh, 350,000 vehicles. That would be basically um, all of not all of Site C's production. They they can accommodate 1.7 million cars from Site C, according to BC Hydro. But we're not going to get to the point of having 1.7 electric, 1.7 million electric vehicles in BC anytime soon. But the electricity challenge: all governments have issued these plans to mass electrification. Mm-hmm. Something's got to give, I and mean, that means more generation facilities. So McCandless, for example, and others have pointed out as well, to meet the rising demand on a number of fronts, including LNG, requires the equivalent of three or four more site C dams, which is just oh, that, <laughs> even the protest with one dam. Yeah. Imagine if there's a couple so, more. So that's why I'm asking, like, if, if, if you're not, we're not going to have another uh, dam that size ever built again. I, we, I'm skeptical, let's put it that way. But So the question is, where do we go then? And, and nobody wants nuclear, even though Ontario uses it. Many have said that may be the way to go. Maybe there's micro-nuclear, I don't know. I just don't think there's an, a desire for that because we don't have a culture for that either. So there's significant challenges ahead in regards to what will the energy need? Where will, the, where will, where will our energy come from uh, 10, 15 it years will, from now? Right? It will, it's an enormous challenge. It, it is. Many people argue we need this electricity to displace fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't, I don't question that, but I do question where we're going to get all this energy from, clean energy. And the building has to begin now. And as there's likely to have to be at least one more hydroelectric dam of significant size, maybe not not, not as big as I see, but I think there actually is another site on the Peace River that's been long identified as a, as a potential dam site. <laughs> but there needs to be solar, wind, um, bio, it's just right across the board because the Freeland budget is pushing this, the BC Clean Energy Plan is pushing this. But the equation isn't completed yet. The, the desire is there. The goals have been set. But how we get there is unclear when we don't have the facilities and generation facilities to get there. Well, I look forward to that conversation uh, in the months ahead because it's going to be front and center. Keith, thank you. Have a great weekend, everyone. 
Let's revisit our uh, top story. As you all know, the federal government approved the multi-billion dollar merger of telecom companies Rogers and Shaw, but with conditions that Ottawa insists will make the deal good for consumers. Uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne, the Minister of Innovation, made the announcement this morning. He said it was a watershed moment for the uh, telecom sector. Now, part of the deal, the vast majority of Shaw's wireless business, Freedom Mobile, will be sold to Quebec-based uh, Videotron. So that's about 2 million customers based in BC, Alberta, and Ontario. Uh, and uh, the minister says, look, there are 21 different conditions that it will have to be met, and he will be watching uh, the companies like a hawk. Uh, the minister uh, describes the consequences for breaking the conditions of the merger earlier today. Take a listen. Should either party breach any of these commitments, they will be required to pay significant financial damages, up to $200 million in the case of Videotron, and up to $1 billion in the case of Rogers. Now, the conditions for the sale to Videotron, which is, of course, the Freedom Mobile a portion of the, the, um, the deal, uh, Videotron has to offer plans comparable to those currently available in Quebec. Uh, uh, Videotron also has to offer plan options that are at least 20% cheaper than those offered by other uh, major players. Uh, they have to expand the 5G network uh, for Freedom Mobile in these in, in British Columbia as well within the next uh, two years and increase data allotment for Freedom Mobile customers by 10% as it brings down prices. So uh, short term sounds okay. Uh, and certainly will make the right uh, as it certainly will lead to you know those types of headlines. But let's for a moment talk about just what we pay uh, for our cell phone costs as well. Joining now is Rosa Adario. She's a communications manager at Open Media. Rosa, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So my first question to you, is this a, de- a good deal for consumers or not? Um, you know, Jess, I really hate to burst your bubble. Um <laughs> But this deal is unequivocally bad for Canadians. It is as bad for Canadians as it was when it was initially proposed. And this is a pretty dark day for the Internet in Canada. So uh, I, I focus mostly on cell phones here because I think that's it impacts everyday people, inter- Internet as well. Um, what would you have liked to have seen but beyond just saying no to this deal? What do you think needs to happen within our market here in Canada to start driving down prices, not only for Internet, but also for cell phone use as well? You know, what we really need is comprehensive competition reform. Um, I think, you know, it's no secret to a lot of people in Canada that we have choice of, you know, three different providers. Um, And without laws that will empower our competition bureau to properly, to be able to properly enforce, um, we really need to see more players in the market, we need more innovation, and that really starts with competition. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think we've gotten to this point? You know, it's hard to say. It is important to highlight that it's not, you know, a single decision by a single government, but a series of decisions by a series of governments that have led to a market that is less competitive, less affordable, and less innovative. Um, so is, in regards to, you're talking about just, uh, you know, driving competition. Why do you think we haven't allowed foreign competition to enter this market? And, you know, I, I understand telecom is vital to the uh, infrastructure of a country. You want local players, you want national players, and you do not want your, your entire telco industry in Canada to be run by, uh, Americans or, or Europeans, But many other countries have foreign um, competition. Um, Is there anything wrong with having a T-Mobile, an AT&T, whatever it may be, uh, Vodafone coming into Canada and say, you know what, you can have a majority share in in a cell phone company and drive that competition? You know, you're completely right that there are a lot of other countries that have many, many different providers. And it is something that is specific to Canada. Our laws don't currently allow for companies like T-Mobile or AT&T to operate because our big three, our Rogers, Bell, and Telus, have built this physical infrastructure and they want to keep it to themselves. Mm -hmm. They don't want to share it with anyone. Uh, It's interesting. I mean, technology has had such an impact on our lives in in, in so many ways and in so many businesses, including radio as well. um, We ran a segment, a similar segment, uh, at 3 o'clock talking to a professor uh, on the issue of of, uh, this particular um, merger. And like you, he didn't like it either. Uh, One of our listeners, who is in Carson 
Johnson City just emailed us in the last 10 minutes or so. Uh, his name is Rich. He says, Jazz, despite being down to only three national networks, competition here is still fierce. So he's based in Carson City, Nevada, so he's listening to the show by, via streaming. He says, my T-Mobile account costs me around $250 a month, but has 12 lines, all 5G, all with hotspot, all able to call to or from anywhere in North America, should I need to. Uh, I could call Canada from Mexico or Mexico from Canada and no charge. If you're paying roaming charges, and that was me complaining earlier, between Bellingham and <laughs> Vancouver, you're being shafted. Canada needs more competition. That's Rich uh, uh, emailing me from um, Carson City, Nevada. And you can, of course, email me at jazz at cknw.com. So m- looking forward here, Rosa, uh, in regards to just the Videotron deal, just for a moment, we should hopefully see some drop in pricing, no? even though it's not what you wanted to see, and I get where you're coming from. I think you're absolutely right. But do you think in the next couple of years we will see at least a 10 or 15% drop in pricing in, in, in British Columbia? You know, unfortunately, I don't think it's on the horizon. I really feel for people out west. Um, I know Shaw has huge markets out in B.C., and the minister has mandated that Videotron has to meet Quebec rates in across Canada in order to adopt Freedom's wireless. That being said, Freedom's rates were lower than Videotron's rates. So we're already going to see a rise in price. This deal has cost Rogers way more than they thought it would. And they're going to be looking to recoup those costs. And that either comes with layoffs, higher prices or both. Oh, well, you know, all this talk, all these last two years, you'd think there'd be some good deals. But, you know, when a minister makes an announcement on a Friday, you know it can't be good. So <laughs> never good. <laughs> never good. Rosa, thank you for your time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Thanks so much for having me. WWE's WrestleMania, the Super Bowl for the sports entertainment business, arrives this weekend to a massive audience at SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles and millions more around the world watching by pay-per-view. Now, to say wrestling fans are rabid would be an understatement. The WWE has nearly 94 million YouTube subscribers and has more than 20 million followers on TikTok. Its female wrestlers uh, comprise five of the top 15 most followed female athletes in the world across Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Long gone are the days of Hulk Hogan, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, Macho Man, Randy Savage. They've been replaced by stars like Roman Reigns and Cody Rhodes. Now, among the thousands who have made the pilgrimage to Los Angeles this weekend is our own producer, Stephen Chang, who's a huge wrestling fan. He joins us now. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Jazz. Missed me yet? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, it's been, it's been a little quieter here today, that's for sure. So, look, uh, you've made the pilgrimage to Los Angeles. What's it been like uh, on day one for you? Heaven on Earth, Jazz. I'm actually pulling up right now, right by Crypto.com Arena, to see Friday Night Smackdown. We're right outside the building, actually. Um, it's been great. Uh, there's been a lot of events happening. We just went to WrestleCon earlier this morning to see wrestlers from WWE and outside of WWE, like former legends like Trish Stratus, Lita. So we got pictures of them. And it's been such a blast. Even the Superstore here that's at the convention center is so magical. So are you uh, spending too much money on merchandise? I think spending too much money is actually quite the understatement in itself. I told the other producer, Talia, how much I spent, and she almost had a heart attack that she almost missed work today. Oh, she, so. she told me. Can I say how much you've spent yeah. so far on merchandise? $400? <laughs> Yeah, $400, and that's only day one. It's only day one, Jazz. We're on day two right now, and God knows what else is going to happen today. Wow. And, and when I say merch, is it is it T-shirts? Is it caps? What are you buying? A whole bunch of stuff. I got it based off a gym bag. I got some T-shirts for sure. Uh, my best friend actually is here with me, and he bought the actual championship belt that John Cena introduced way back in, like, around 2006 it was. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of good souvenirs. That one was over for, like, $500, Jazz. Wow. So you're gonna you're gonna go to the local gym uh, where you live with a re- with a wrestling uh, bag now. I just want to know when you go work out. Is that what you're telling me? Yes, it makes you feel superior from uh, compared to everyone else. So <laughs> it's, it's a huge boost in confidence to carry a six hundred dollar belt around at the gym. There you, there you go. So tell me, what is it about professional wrestling that ha- that that you have these rabid fans? going down to Los Angeles, traveling all over the U.S. Uh, I mean, I remember when I lived in India, wrestling was huge there, uh, WWE, all over Europe. What is it about wrestling that that attracts these these rabid fans? 
Well, it's not just about the athleticism and like the physicality of the sport itself, Jazz, but I think what a lot of people relate to the most is the storytelling of each match, of each wrestler and their backstories. And there's a lot of different themes that go on with each of these storylines. Uh, right now, for example, the main event is Cody Rhodes versus Roman Reigns. And the thing about that is Roman Reigns is The Rock's cousin. And his whole thing is um, carrying over the lineage uh, by being the main event. And then his opponent, Cody Rhodes, is the son of a former wrestler, Dusty Rhodes. And he wants to kind of continue what his father never, was never able to, which is win the world championship. That's why that's such a big deal that's happening this weekend is because um, there's uh, different stories about, like, family and carrying on a legacy. And there's a lot like, different storylines and different matches. A lot of people can relate to them. And I think for me personally and for my brother as well, uh, who is with us in the car, we just love how relatable these uh, these wrestlers are and how much, like, they inspire us to become, like, a better part of ourselves, be more confident, and just, like, want to continue on life with, you know, just having, like, the full... Just, 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 just the whole, this whole inspiration, yeah. So just keep doing what we want to do in life, and uh, just be happy with what we do. So uh, that's what's what that's what draws us to wrestling. There has always been a stereotype of professional wrestling fans. When you're at at this, um, when you're buying merchandise, you're out there with other fans at this wrestling con. Uh, con. Um, what 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 kind of what's the demographic? I'm very curious. Is it an older crowd? Is it younger? What's it look like? Oh my God, Jazz. The best thing about the community here is that it's so diverse. Uh, I've been talking to people from different parts of the United States. We, but just, we made a friend from Dallas who's around my age last night in a different event, and we met some people who had kids, like families, some people who are much older. Like, it's such a diverse crowd with people all around the world who are here in LA for WrestleMania from different walks of life and different ethnicities. And that's what's cool about wrestling is that it just brings so many different kinds of people together. Um- so did you, was this done sort of at last minute or did you really plan this out? Like, look, I want to go to WrestleMania. We've been planning this for the whole time, for a while, actually, since they announced that they were coming to L.A. Because the last time they were in L.A. was around WrestleMania 21, which is in around 06, 07, which is when John Cena first won his world championship. And 16 wins later, he has a match actually tomorrow for another championship. So it's been a long time since they were in L.A. So uh, I'm curious, SoFi Stadium, that's where the, um, the, the Los Angeles Rams play, uh, mm-hmm. world-class stadium known for its amazing uh, scoreboard. Uh, you just have to Google it and take a look at it. So w- will SoFi be sold out? SoFi, yeah, there's a few more tickets left, but then it's very, very close to selling out. I think by tomorrow morning it's going to be sold out because even the, the set just looks beautiful. The match card is amazing, and everybody just wants to see WrestleMania. It's it's like a, it's like on the bucket list for every single wrestling fan. So that what, what are we talking about here? Eighty, ninety thousand fans? Around there, yeah, that's a pretty good estimate. Wow, because I know uh, was it in Detroit? They sent the record, I think, for the biggest crowd ever for a sporting event. I think it was like ninety thousand, and this is probably twenty years ago or twenty five years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And so, if it's still there, it gives you a sense of how big these things are. Well, I know you're having lots of fun, and I'm very happy for you. Stay out of trouble. Enjoy your weekend. Look forward to having you back here soon. Thanks, Jazz. Enjoy your vacation as well. and cooking are essential areas where those with disabilities can often be invisible or overlooked. Uh, Our next guest hopes to change that. Jules Sherrod is author of Crip Up the Kitchen, and he's based in Duncan. He joins us now. Jules, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jazz. Uh, Before we begin as to why you wrote this, can you explain to me what Crip Up means? So crip up is, or cripping, it could, it depends on the person, mm-hmm. is a term that we use in the disability community um, to reclaim the word and it's to take back power and to actually, like, it's a, it's a, a call to action to make sure that disabled people are included in those spaces and to make them disability friendly. Ah, so hence the title Crip Up the Kitchen. Yes, yes. So how did you, was there a moment that sort of a eureka moment that, you know, I'm going to write a cookbook uh, that focuses on um, those who are disabled uh, and, and you have some great recipes. How did you come about that idea? So I started a website in 2019 um, called Disabled Kitchen and Garden, and I was sharing, I had just learned about the wonders of the Instapot um, after everybody was like poo-pooing it forever, like you need one, but it's horrible, (laughs) (laughs) was the the phrasing, right? And then I finally got on the bandwagon, and I'm like, wait a minute, this is life-changing, like I can finally cook again. Mm -hmm. And so I started to develop recipes specifically for disabled people. Um, And then 2020 comes around and the pandemic hit. 
And um, it was a few months into the pandemic. And those of us who were disabled and chronic, chronically ill knew it wasn't going anywhere. Um, people were coming down with like chronic illnesses. They were being newly diagnosed um, as different neurodivergence because the routines were suddenly disrupted and their um, local, like their normal ways of masking and coping were suddenly gone. Um, and so we were like all these newly discovered disabled people. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I have I have the information for you. Um, and so I sat down for a while and just really thought out what this um, book needed to be, um, how it could best serve the most people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then after that was all done, um, I began to shop it around to different publishers. So the book itself, uh, I guess you focus on 50 recipes and yes. as you say, use the three key tools, the electric mm-hmm. pressure cooker, the air fryer, and bread machine. And from yes. there, I guess you, the book itself focuses on other things, even like pantry prep and meal planning mm-hmm. as well. Yes. So, like, as the title says, there's um, a lot of front matter, and, like, there's all the tools, and I go through um, different equipment and also give costs because disabled people often have barriers to buying this equipment, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I give, like, the tools, why they're important, how you can use them, and then um, just the tips for meal prepping, um, how to even organize your kitchen in a way that is disabled-friendly, because the current work, like, how most kitchens are organized aren't really all that conducive to disabled people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it gives them some new ways or out-of-the-box thinking for how to organize their kitchen, um, how to use cooking as a technique to um, deal if you're having a panic attack or anxiety, um, and then we get into the recipes <laughs> and starting with um, like the basics, bases and spice mixes and all that other stuff, and then... Yeah, the recipes. <laughs> and the Food. recipes themselves, um, I, t- to my understanding, they begin with, I guess, the ones that will be the, the take the yeah. least effort to the greatest effort. Yes, yes. So it's organized. So every, like the very first recipe takes five minutes to prep. And once you're done prepping, it's basically throw everything into the electric pressure cooker and walk away. So it's five minutes work. And then um, the very last four, there's only four recipes that require a whole bunch of um, like all of your spoons, basically. It's mm-hmm. going to wipe you out for days if you try it. But they are four recipes that have a lot of cultural significance to different people, mm-hmm. especially in British Columbia. So um, I wanted to give some ways of adapting those recipes as well to for, like, if you find yourself with all that energy, mm-hmm. um, here are some other things that you can make. Um, and in the process of making it, you learn skills that you can apply to your other culturally appropriate foods. So that's the thing that I wanted to do. I picked recipes that would teach skills that you could apply to other of your foods that you need to eat. What kind of foods or what kind of dishes um, have you included in your recipes? Um, there's a lot of Punjabi food. There's um, <laughs> so much Punjabi food, which I grew like I grew up surrounded by Punjabi people, and I was in, um, in adopted into a Punjabi home when I was in my teens. So Punjabi mm. home like food is like home cooking to me. It means so much. Um, and so that was important um, to honor that part of history. So there that would is, be butter chicken and samosas, I'm assuming? Yeah, yeah butter <laughs> chicken, samosas, um, uh, dumb biryani, biryani yeah. um, uh, chicken korma. Um, so um, ones that, some that you can find in restaurants and other ones that you kind of need to know a person to know a person to get them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, What other and, kind of recipes? I'm just curious. Yeah, Thai food, yeah. Uh, uh, um, Dukabor food, um, and then there's like Eastern European food and some Jewish foods, um, Northern European food, um, some Near East, Middle Eastern um, food, some Mexican food, um, some American. American mm-hmm. was a really d- difficult one, <laughs> for, for which you would be surprising, but American cuisines and Canadian cuisines are very different. Mm-hmm. So it's like a broad range. I tried to capture like some some cornerstone recipes from all the major continents and then drilled in just a little bit deeper. Oh, there's some Vietnamese food as well. Yeah, and you um, also... As well. And you got a good chili recipe too. Yes, yes. So the chili recipe... That one was one of my favorites um, because it's based off of a, a 
family recipe that I lost um, and I wasn't satisfied. Like there's all these online recipes and they're all very bland mm-hmm. and all very like without flavor. They were missing the masala. And so, and so um, it took a while for me to get that one done and be able to recreate the, the flavors from memory. So and once I got that one done, I was like, okay, <laughs> I can, I can rest now. <laughs> My work is complete. <laughs> well, good for you. Now is the book available or is it, it's just about to be released or is it, yeah, is it available? Uh, pre-order, basically, anywhere that you can buy books and like go into your indie bookseller. They will love you if you go in and pre-order it via them or via like most of their websites. You can order online via their websites, um, like all the usual places. The Amazons and of course, as you say, yep. go, go local if you possibly can. So yeah. it should be, it's coming up very soon. Yeah, and- May 9th um, is the Canadian release date. May 30th is the rest of the world. Excellent. And it's called Crip Up the Kitchen, Tools, Tips and Recipes for the Disabled Cook. Uh, Jules, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Goodbye now. It's over. That's all, thank you. All right, that's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's... This week we look at cash isn't king. Should businesses be forced to accept cash as payment? And Jennifer Addison says a whole generation of kids find friends offensive. Are we just too sensitive? Joining us today is our regular rap panel, Lee Halib, the TV reporter and radio host, and Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. What's happening, everyone? What's happening? I'll tell you what's happening. I went to Chipotle today, (laughs) and I happen to have... 20 bucks in my in my pocket. Now, generally, I use uh, 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 credit cards, and uh, I went and paid with my $20 bill, and the cashier just kind of looked at me like I was incredibly stupid. And they had to actually go to the back of the of the shop to find change because they, they didn't have it at the till, I, I, I swear. Now, the other oh day, we, we did this segment, and it, it was based on a an email I got from a listener who went to pay at Shoppers Drug Mart, and it was busy, so they, he went through a particular line. And wanted to pay for something. It was eleven dollars and some cents, and they wouldn't take cash at Shoppers Drug Mart. And this particular yes, so th- that's what? the thing. So let me ask you this question. Let me, Leah. Let me start with you first and foremost. First of all, do you carry cash in twenty twenty three? Okay, I know I sound shocked, but um, I don't carry cash. But I, I'm debit, so debit is like my main thing. I don't carry money on me, which I should probably just in case. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I'm debit e transfer. You know. Anything like that. I don't use trying to use my credit cards often. Usually it's my debit pretty much. But mm-hmm. I've never gone into Shoppers Drug Mart and been told I couldn't use cash or anything, although I don't use it. But I haven't seen that happen. So that's a first. I know. And it was and he was quite uh, angry, obviously. It was only at like $11 and some odd cents, but uh, he was not happy. Yeah. Sarah, how about you? Do you carry cash still? I'm, I'm looking in my wallet right now. I have four $5 bills. $100 bills, y'all. That's four what she's $5. Four $5 bills. Four $5 bills. Big difference. And a but I actually have to purposely take out money because a neighborhood girl walks my dogs occasionally for me. And so I pay her in cash. So, But that's about the only time. And in fact, I've gone to stores before where I've you know pulled out money. And I've said, like, if, if it's not convenient... Because like a lot of small stores don't carry cash and understandably so, right? I mean, with all the burglaries and stuff going on, yeah, I mean, that makes sense on top of wrong. losing everything else, you want to lose all your cash in your drawer? So we had uh, John Green join us the other day. He's a lawyer and uh, uh, he, listen to what he had to say in regards to cash and whether or not businesses need to accept cash. Nope, they don't. Really, civil contract law. So if a person, if you get two parties, so say someone comes to my law firm, and maybe it's a little bit different because I have a law society behind me, but uh, say they come to my law firm and the law society is not involved, uh, they can offer to pay for my legal or pay for services and anything that they want to offer, and I can accept it. Uh, If if they want to trade me their car, I can accept that. So So basically, (laughs) it's up to the business. Yeah. So I didn't know that. Yeah, I always said legal tender, right? But it, but no, it's so. uh, We had uh, Talia Miller, one of our producers, told me when she she was working at a retail outlet here downtown, 
And she sometimes will deal with angry customers who want to pay cash. <laughs> and uh, it's a digital operation, decision made by management, not made by Talia, who has to deal with the customers. <laughs> but do you think uh, do you think we should force businesses to accept cash? Because I'm, one of the um, one of the uh, surveys I was looking at, they say by 2030, 90 percent of people will be paying by debit or by credit. It'll be all digital, and oh. very few people will be paying in cash. Do you think business here's, should be well, forced? Here's the good news. I mean, then we won't have to pay for all the money to trade over from Queen Elizabeth's face to King Charles's <laughs> face. True. So there's some there's some savings built in into the nugget right there. But I mean, for some things, it's it's nice. Like, I mean, like you tip the valet or you, you know, tip the, yeah. the, the restaurant. You, some people like to tip in cash in the restaurant because they know mm-hmm. that that way that the server can actually pocket it. And also, like if you're saving receipts for business, you can't include the tip. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, so on. So I mean, cash is always going to have a purpose. But I mean, this is this is the same society that when you go to the bank and ask to take out, like if you tried to take out fifteen hundred dollars in cash, they make you fill out forms. And I, as a realtor, mm-hmm. cannot take cash deposits over a certain amount. Mm-hmm. You can't leave the country with more than ten thousand dollars of Canadian yeah. cash. I mean, if somebody showed up at my like to make a deposit on a, a real estate purchase and came in with a bag of twenty thousand dollars, well, first of all, we yeah, can't accept it. And second money. of all, I'd be like, Ex- <laughs> "Excuse me, Captain Money Launderer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll be seeing you later. Thank you so much, and don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out." Yeah, I, but I think it is going to be a problem I, with o- older, older yeah, uh, well, consumers. That's what I was yeah. Say. What about older people? My mom's eighty-six, like, and oh, she I know loves a lot to of well, I know a lot of older people that don't know how to e-transfer. I couldn't even imagine teaching somebody how to e-transfer. Like, I just, you know, older people, cash is king. And, like, I think every business should be the exact same. You have cash, you have credit, you have debit, and maybe Bitcoin in the future. But that's it. <laughs> oh, no, no. I think you no. have to make well, it uniform. <laughs> I think, like, my mom My mom likes to use tap, but she does also like to take money out and, like, have some money in her. And I think that that's, that's not uncommon over a certain age. I mean, like, you know, I'm in my late 50s. Yeah. I still like to, you know, it's nice to have a couple of dollars just in case. To t- like, I, I had something delivered to the house, a, a really heavy uh, thing delivered to the house the other day. And the delivery guys, I tipped them. And now, I mean, it's not like I can say, can I have your email address so I can e-transfer yeah. you like $20? <laughs> no, exactly. I mean. All right, let's focus on our next issue, which is, of course, uh, Jennifer Aniston, a huge TV star and movie star as well. She, of course, uh, spent many times, many years uh, on the TV show um, Friends. She was promoting, promoting her upcoming film, of course, um, a Murder Mystery on Netflix. And she says there's a whole generation of uh, young people uh, today who watch the episodes of Friends and find them offensive. And she says you can't you can't be uh, saying certain things uh, these days that you were allowed to say uh, many years ago when Friends is on the air. Now, if you think about that show, just for a moment, you had uh, the characters there ridiculing Monica's weight, uh, cracking up at the expense of Chandler's transgender father, and, of course, Joey's at times objectifying women. Uh, uh, so, uh, and there's, so she's just saying it's very difficult to talk about a lot of that stuff today because it's there are more people who seem to get more offended by some of this stuff. Leah, let me go to you first and foremost. Do you think Friends is offensive? of this day and age when we look at it uh, based on what what they ran? Well, it's interesting because I would never have thought Friends first. You know, that's not the one that jumps to my mind, like maybe Married with Children or something, you know, Dukes of Hazzards or something, (laughs) you know. I'm I'm not thinking Friends, you know, because Friends was funny, but I haven't rewatched it. So I'd be interested to rewatch some of the episodes and see if they're correct. But I mean, at the time, when it was airing, it was funny. So yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't think of friends though. They're not one that I think that would be very offensive, but I guess maybe some people find offense in everything, right? So I don't think we should do anything is pretty much what we're <laughs> Sarah, at right Sarah, now. <laughs> uh, Sarah, do we just sit on our hands? Are we just too woke these days? Uh, it's a product of the times, right? Like, I mean, I walk, sometimes watch an episode of Friends because, I mean, it's probably, it's probably on right now for all I know. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, literally I'll watch and, I'll, and they'll make some jokes and I'll kind of like, I'll kind of cringe because I think, oh. you know, that's, that's not like now it would be like, a, but it's not because I think that I'm, you know, woke or, and I hate that expression because it sounds <laughs> derogatory. Like I really do. But the funny thing is, if you watch All in the Family, which was pur- purposely being like, you know, this, this like not very well-educated guy and he was bigoted and all that kind of stuff that actually managed to transcend the last 50 years better than friends does in a lot of ways. What? Because it's, yeah. it's like, if you, if you watch it, it's kind of like, it's making like, it's, 
it's making fun of like biases in a lot of ways, right? It's like, you know, you're, you're sort of looking at it from a different point. I mean, good Lord, watch Blazing Saddles. And I mean, that movie is hilarious, but you can't repeat anything about it that's on at all anymore. But it also sends up all sorts of bias and prejudices. So it's, it's funny in that way. You, you couldn't yeah. get that movie made now. There's just oh, God, no, no way. You no, could no, no. not make it. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's, yeah, not at all. It's just, uh, Leah, I'm, I'm, now, did you watch Friends growing up? I, yeah, I did watch Friends growing up. Yeah, Friends was one of my favorite shows, absolutely. Yeah, and, and you know, there's also been complaints, well, it wasn't the most diverse cast, but you know, I watched it all the time. I love the show, and sometimes I think we just go back and we start judging these shows by the norms of today, and I, I don't think that's fair, number one. And I, you can't because it's a different time, right? Yeah. Like You can't judge shows today by shows of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. You just can't because things were accepted back then that they are now, that they aren't not now. You know, time's change so really you can't judge and like throw everything out and throw out books and cancel books and cancel movies because that's what was popular and that's what yeah. was you know important then you no, know exactly I, mean, I, I still watch crazy. i still like watching friends it's just that sometimes you watch it and like you know i mean the, the things are they they do some things are stale dated it they you wouldn't you wouldn't include them in the in it now but i mean you yeah. can't really go, it's it's like saying like Okay, Huckleberry Finn. It's there's whole portions of that book that are incredibly offensive to a lot of people, but it, it's a product of its time. So yes. you know, you you have to like you have to read it. And if you were going to read it in a in a classroom stuff, like yeah, is this a, is it, a, it upsetting to a lot of people? I'm sure it is. It's a product of its time, so it's kind of a, like a little yeah. piece of history. Yeah. And you can't you can't rewrite that. No, exactly. I was just reading the creator of the show, Marta Kaufman. Uh, said that uh, told the Los Angeles Times that she felt guilty for the friend's lack of diversity, so she pledged four million dollars uh, to her alma mater to 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 <laughs> to uh, provide scholarships to, to uh, African American students. Guilty. I know. I'm just I, like, <laughs> I wish I had that problem with guilt and that had the money to do with something about it. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, no I'm sorry. Here's a check for four million dollars. I'm just going to sit on my money. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, no, Lee, uh, Lee, Sarah. Thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You guys too. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. season of 911 on a new night Thursday March 14th on Global stream on Stack TV